From the home of creative writing on the Internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. In English, it is 8 p.m. precisely. In a secret tunnel leading to a pirate DVD factory, it's almost tea time. And on the planet Krypton, it's, well, I don't know, because someone burned the comic in 1961, fear my mind will be corrupted. So, good evening, good morning, and oh my jolly gosh, wherever you are, welcome to Litopia After Dark. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can, and don't hold back in the chat room. So, it's the end of everything we know. People are getting dumber, the world is sinking into entropy, signs of decline and fall are all around. Queen's English is on the endangered list, authors can't be bothered to write their own books anymore, and idiocracy has replaced meritocracy as the new core. Here to contemplate the last rays of sunlight over intellectual Armageddon with me this evening are, from Indianapolis in America's Midwest, writer and historian Beverly Gray, from England's West Country writer and lecturer Dave Bartram, from London, UK, writer and ARG master Richard Howes, and from Oxford, UK, the best-selling debut author in children's fiction this year, M.G. Harris. Beverly, how close are we, do you think, to the end? I thought it ended last week. <laughs> it, it, well, I, I don't know. As I, we keep evolving. I, I think this is the cry of every generation. Ah, we're doomed. Okay, so you're an optimist. We'll change that by the time the program's over. Dave, <laughs> well, what, what, what above all things would you keep the same and not let anyone change at all? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I'd probably keep the same my choices of things that I'd keep the same but I wouldn't tell anybody what they were I think in case they change them in case they change them absolutely logical fiendishly clever um, Richard is anything getting better uh, my uh, my morning routine is getting better I, I think I'm getting quicker to get out of the house in the morning <laughs> certainly mm-hmm. Oh, so you're cultivating your own garden. Good advice. Um, <laughs> MG, where is it all going to end? Well, just looking at some of the things that affect me, I think air travel is going to become glamorous again as only the rich can afford it. And the rest of us, like me, will have to sit in our rooms on our own, enjoying great takeout coffee and cupcakes and chatting to people that we can never actually meet in person. Hmm. But that's my life already. <laughs> but in the meantime, you have to talk to us, I suppose. Well, yeah, but you know, well, where is it going to end? It's the start, isn't it? <laughs> I think the saddest part is you can't share those cupcakes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> By 2010, a mere 350 million people worldwide will speak English as a first language, but around 2 billion people, or a third of the world's population, will be speaking English as a second language. In other words, the language of Shakespeare and Milton will be largely replaced by a new global tongue called Panglish. It's English, but not quite as one knows it. In an article in Britain's Daily Mail this week, David Derbyshire explains. Linguists say, he writes, the language of Shakespeare and Dickens is evolving into a new simplified form of English which will be spoken by billions of people around the world. The changes are not being driven by Britons, Americans or Australians, but the growing number of people who speak English as a second language. According to linguists, uh, Panglish will be similar to versions of English used by non-native speakers. As the new language takes over, the will become the... Friend will be friend, 
and the phrase he talks will become he talk. By 2020, the number of native English speakers will be down to just 300 million. That's the point where English, Spanish, Hindu, Urdu and Arabic will have the same number of native speakers, according to predictions. But as Panglish becomes more common, it will increasingly fragment into regional dialects, experts believe. Broj Kachru of Ohio State University, one of the world's leading experts in English as a second language, said non-native English dialects were already becoming unintelligible to each other. Singaporean English, for instance, combines English with Malay, Tamil and Chinese and is difficult for English-speaking Westerners to understand. Uh, they have always been, there have always been mutually unintelligible dialects of languages such as Arabic, Chinese, Hindu and Latin, he said. There's no reason to believe that the linguistic future of English will be any different. Unlike French, David Darbyshire continues in his piece, which is jealously protected from corruption by the Académie Française, there is no organisation to police the English language. He points out that one of the most famous examples of a language that fragmented is Latin. By AD 300, a new offshoot of Latin, Vulgar Latin, was being spoken by the masses with its own grammar, vocabulary and pronunciation. Over the next 500 years, it split into increasingly regional dialects. By AD 800, it had evolved into a series of mutually unintelligible languages, the forerunners of modern Italian, French and Spanish. So, Richard, what can we do to stop this linguistic rot? I, I don't think that we can. Um, I mean, you know, as, as you said, the, the French uh, are uh, trying, to, trying to keep all the Frenchy words in there. They, they've recently issued a, a directive so that French people on the web did not use words like web, email, and blog um, to use words such as le web and la blog instead, I think. Um, as Girls Aloud, though, uh, have recently said in the latest song, uh, they can't speak French, so they let the funky music do the talking. <laughs> I... Um, I, I don't really see that this is much different from the divide between those posh, proper-speaking fellows up beyond the road and the uh, Cockney geezers on the market stalls. Um, certainly nothing that I'm going to worry about, because I'll be dead before it really matters. M MG, you're a, you're a polyglot. I mean, uh, does this matter at all, do you think? I don't think it, it, I don't think it does, and I think I've actually been in a situation where, um, where I've seen this operating in that uh, you're in a, you're in a, when I was in a lab, some of the top labs... Uh, tend to have native, in, even in this country, the native English speakers would be in the minority because you'd be surrounded by people from China and Korea and European countries and Latin America, but everybody speaks English because that's the one language that everybody understands. And, and in science and engineering, that's probably always going to be the constant, actually, that you have to be able to speak to speak that. So what happens is you get, um, you get some, some people, you know, want their native they want the native english speakers to correct them when they make mistakes but more more often yeah. they don't they just want their um, they want people to understand them and and so you know you get these this version of english spoken in in these labs that is um yeah i think from an outside it would look like some kind of dialect of english and 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 when you get australians into the mix then everybody even the native english speakers start talking in australian accents and uh saying you beauty that sort of thing so um, what mm. I saw in the lab, you know, doesn't make me worry at all. It was fun. It's fun to, you know, pick up. It's fun for the English speakers to pick up all sorts of little bits and pieces from other people in uh, speaking English and, and, you know, with their accents yeah. and well, things. Well, no, no one so far is actually prepared to stand up as a, as a stickler for, you know, the, the Queen's English. Um, Dave, I mean, if this continues, if this sort of, this, this trend continues, we're all ultimately going to end up speaking text speak, aren't we? Or should I say text speak? I, I don't know about that. I mean, I think a lot of this, this, this whole debate is kind of, you know, shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted, you know. I imagine Middle English speakers would be bemoaning the um, the current English we speak now, and uh, you know this all started with the Linga Franca, didn't it? So, 
Mm. It's just an ongoing process. The only way to stop the barbarians at the gates is to actually open the gates and let them in and assimilate them. <laughs> English has got to do to survive, hasn't it? If if we stood up for English, it would just die out as a minority tongue sport, you know, spoken around certain parts of London. Well, most of it is, yeah. you know, you get out, out into the provinces, it's fairly unrecognizable anyway in places. So That's just got to let them in and assimilate them. <clears throat> well, after all, in America, we haven't spoken in years. So. <laughs> That's quoting Henry Higgins. Yes, I know. Well, um, everything evolves and changes, doesn't it? I mean, there are more Chinese than there are English. There are more Muslim than Christian, and there are more Chavs than Goths, but none of them are speaking my language. But interestingly enough, over here in the States, the, it's, it's always been very regional as far as regional accents. You know, you had the Southerners, you had the New, uh, New Englanders, uh, Midwesterners had a, a certain dialect, and yet with the advent of, of television, a lot of that regionalism is going away so that, that you're losing some of the flavor. And I think the thing is that with communications the way they are, it's you're not really going to have quite the isolated group, so all languages will evolve a bit, I think. But that's the nature of language. I mean, if you go back and even just read documents from the 1600s. I mean, they're difficult to read. They, they use uh, entirely different letters and things, and that's just, uh, you know, 400 years. I'm interested in the way that the digital interactions are changing. Um, as you said, you know, you're getting text speak, so they're changing even the way native speakers of English understand the language. Um, and, and actually, there's a new book out by a, a friend of mine who's also published by Scholastic called Big Woo, that's the whole thing is a blog novel um, and it's got fantastic it's just got fantastically authentic teen blog speak um, and if you read it it's exactly yeah. like you know it's like being around some teenage kids I mean I live you know with, with a teenager and it's amazing reading this novel is like entering their world yeah but isn't this isn't this just another sort of symptom of decline and fall i mean in other words you know people have incredibly short attention spans are going to be reading their novels on their iphones rather than proper books Sixty thousand words will seem like an encyclopedic size you know i mean it's just just a, 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 ultimately i mean it, there's there's no meaning left if you if you just keep on abbreviating your, your language and, and talking text speak, don't, don't i you? disagree i mean look at hebrew hebrew doesn't have any vowels and you know you can take a lot of the vowels out of english and people will still understand them and that's really all that's happening i mean there are new words being invented but like seriously spell s-r-s-l-y you know everybody understands that so you're saying that today's shakespeare will be, will be or tomorrow's shakespeare will be using that kind of language do you think there's the depth and richness there? I think it is a dialect that is going to develop. I think it's a dialect that exists and is in, is completely functional amongst you know people under twenty, mm. and and they you know it's not just the way they. I mean they actually they vocalise those things now. They say whatever and you know uh, lol. I mean my daughter says lol like a like it's a word. It is a word. L O L. Yeah, lol and zomg and that sort of thing. Zol. Zomg. Z. Oh my god. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, know, I think that, that this is about richness and diversity and the loss of subtleties of meaning, isn't it? That's the real danger. Yeah. You, you slip into kind of black and white rather than the, the rather rich shades of grey that we actually enjoy at the moment. That's the, the particular risk, I think. And it's, it, it would be a shame if we lose that. Yeah, but I think human nature being what it is, I mean, if you, if you watch uh, children in the playground, they love to make up words. Funny sounds become words, and it it may take a different form, but 
I think the human desire to communicate is so very strong that uh, black and white isn't isn't going to last. They'll they'll start shading the gray back in. Yeah. Might not be a form that those of us who didn't grow up with it will recognize, but I, I think it'll be there. All right, so it's not not the end of civilization as we know it quite yet, but yeah, I'm, I'm still. Yeah. Heading my best. <laughs> and I'm still optimistic, Peter. <laughs> Pleased to hear it. And I always get into trouble for making words up in my manuscripts. So. Uh, <laughs> and in Scrabble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not allowed, apparently. <laughs> Beginning next month, Random House will read and consider for publication the top-rated stories on the website youwriteon.com. The publisher announced the move for a six-month period beginning in April as part of its, quote, commitment to new writing talent. Now, websites have tried this kind of thing before, and it hasn't always been a success. On our own community website, Litopia, we've avoided this kind of hookup for the moment. But who knows? What I'd like to know is, is this the future of how publishers will find writers? Beverly, your views. Oh... I think it's going to be like everything else. You might find one or two, just as a few uh, self-published people have really succeeded. For the most part, it still comes down to whether someone can write, whether the story is there. Might provide another avenue, but I don't think it'll be the one and only. Um, No one's going to make a decision. It's uh, score-rated submissions, and the peer group decides what goes through and what doesn't uh, go through. They say, yes, Dave, is, is that the way, do you think, of the, of the future? Uh, the, the thing that worries me, there, there's an alternative, you know, um, definition of democracy, isn't it? That's mob rule. Yeah. And, you know, 20 ill-informed opinions are a poor substitute for one well-informed opinion. I think, the, the ultimately, I don't think you will increase the amount of books that get uh, optioned and, and published or the range will change much. It's, it smacks more of, of a desperate need to try and find something new, much in the same way that Hollywood is desperately scrabbling around for something fresh, uh, rather than a failure in the system. I think it's just... There are, there's an awful lot of dross out there. There will be all, an awful lot of dross out there, and I would hope, irrespective of the means by which it's discovered, the decent things will come out anyway. Mm, interesting. Um, Richard, uh, this could be the end of agents. Do you think I need to be worried? No, no. Um, personally, I think peer groups don't know zip. Uh, well, obviously, that's that's not entirely true. Lintopia seems to be doing perfectly well. Um, I, I personally think that as, as long as Random House properly considers the pieces rather than bowing to any kind of pressure that they've said that they're going to do this and then they feel that they've got to go ahead with it uh, and, and bow to the, those those members who just kind of score each other highly because they're best mates. Mm. Uh, that, that's always a problem. And, and uh, I've, I have heard hints and rumours that that does go on on uh, you write on. I'm not saying because I've never been there myself. So no, that's fine. It's your opinion. Information. Yeah, it's your, your opinion. Um, You're entitled to opinion. But, but I, I am... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of, of the winner of the Rich and Judy writing competition from a couple of years back. Um, I can't even remember her name in the book. was something about olives. Uh, but w- what happened to her and, and how many did that book sell? I, I don't think it did that well. well uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, publishers have tried this kind of thing before. And I think, the you know, my, my own view is that more and more publishers will be trying this. But I think they're... they're there may be an ulterior motive there because uh, many publishers are looking around for just you know new sources of income really i mean publishing right now is in 
facing perhaps a really uh, quite tough economic year. Monetizing the slush pile is something I think publishers will be looking at very, very keenly. Um, the problem is, of course, when it, when it does come down to peer review, um, the, there's a sort of conflict of interest because you obviously want your manuscript to get reviewed, but you're not that interested in reviewing other people's. And it doesn't always guarantee the best rises at the top, but who knows? Good luck. Maybe agents are not going to need it anymore, I don't know, but who needs the author? Uh, books are just product, of course, in show business. Katie Price, the model and reality television star, formerly known as Jordan, is up for a major children's book prize in the UK, the prestigious W.H. Smith Children's Book of the Year. It's an open secret that she didn't write the book herself. The book, Perfect Ponies, My Pony Care Book has outraged writers. However, Michael Rosen, the children's laureate here in the UK, has leapt to her defence. He says, We get too hung up about authorship. None of us writes a book entirely by ourselves. Writing the Times, Ben Hoyle, their arts reporter explains, according to her publishers, Hoyle writes, Price, one of the most commercially successful writers in the country, is a brand, and it's impossible to quantify how much of the book she wrote. The Society of Authors has been inundated with complaints from concerned members. Tracy Chevalier, author of A Girl the pearl earring who chairs the organization said i'm shocked i'm amazed the publishers even put the book up if it's ghost written then it's inappropriate that it should be shortlisted i am disappointed by the judges uh, joanne harris wrote chocolat and is now writing for children so that it would be depressing quote beyond belief beyond anything if price wins on april the 9th if this is an award for people who write books then it should be open only to people who write books not to somebody who didn't who just lends their name to a book or who would have written a book if they had time but didn't however the, the current children's laureate has leapt to price's defense michael rosen said that roald Dahl was a, a rarity among children's writers and producing books that were purely his own work. Quote, we get too hung up about authorship. None of us writes a book entirely on our own. We get help from editors or ideas might come from conversations with our families or children. The issue is whether the book's good, not who has written it. If Jordan or any of our helpers have written a very good book, then absolutely good luck to them. Price's publisher at Century said, people say Price doesn't write them. I don't see what the fuss is. It's no different to the way the recordings of the monkeys were put together. Uh, so, isn't Katie Price just the magical, log natural, logical future of publishing? Um, Dave? <laughs> Why did I know you'd pick me? <laughs> <laughs> natural, <laughs> logical? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, you went for the opposite. Yeah, I, I actually looked it up on Google, or that thing, whatever it's called, the interweb, yeah. and... Um, and I, I was getting incensed, then I read it was a book on how to look after your pony, at which point I couldn't... <laughs> you know, so, so a celebrity puts their name to a book about a practical thing. It's like Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen doing, you know, practical home decorating tips. It, the fact that it's up for a prize is laughable, but the fact that she's put a name to a, a how to look after your pony book is irrelevant to me. I couldn't give a monkey's... Ironically. It's not a how to look after your pony book, it's a story about girls with ponies. Uh, when, I, when, I looked, when I looked up, it said it was a guide to look after your pony. Are, are we sure this isn't a spelling mistake and it should be perfect puppies? <laughs> Part three. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pers personally, I, I think that this is the brand issue, uh, and it speaks volumes yeah. about celebrity culture, the nanny state, and the hordes of the brainless twitching undead that roam our land, but it's... It's not far removed from the fact that so many people seem to stick to reading either the same old author, you know, the John Grishams and the J.K. Rowlings, just because they know what's coming and, and, and what they're in for, mm. or that they, they pick the celebrity name because they can't think for themselves, because they don't have time, generally, I, I, I guess. Everyone's 
but got so much to do, so much to see, so much to experience, so much work to do that they're, they're just looking for some downtime with something that's familiar. Well, I see this as another sign of decline and fall, but perhaps I'm just being an old-fashioned fuddy-duddy. I think Michael Rosen would probably say I am. Uh, Beverly, I mean, you don't need an author, do you? You need, a, you need a brand and an anonymous writer to do the boring grunt work. Isn't that true? Uh, I'm kind of the boring writer who does all the grunt oh, work. You are. So, <laughs> um, again, I think a lot of people like the celebrity books because it's someone they've seen, someone they can identify with. But uh, as far as the book getting the prize, if it's that well done... Well, it's up for the prize. It's, it may have been entered. Trout out the unknown author who, who wrote it. I mean, you know, that seems a little unfair to me that she gets the, the credit for someone else's work. But not knowing the situation, I mean, I don't know if it was a case of she wrote down the ideas and someone edited it for her. That's possible. You know, it may not be she just signed her name to it. She may have actually come up with the ideas and someone did the structure for her. So, I, I don't know enough about the situation, Peter. Yeah, well, I, I, I detect a lot of weasel words here, you know. I mean, people are sort of saying, oh, of course, you know, all writers get a little bit of help here and there, and you can't help getting an idea, you know, from the chap on the bus. And I mean, I, I, it's, it's well, fudging it, the issue, isn't it's, it? It's also, if you look at the people defending her, they're already there, they're already established. Mm. So... Obviously, they're not going to be hurt one way or the other, whereas a, a writer who hasn't broken in yet, she's taking this place of someone who's dedicated years and years to the work, yeah, yeah. to their work. And that, and that's – but, you know, our, our society is very unfair at times. Ruby so. Tuesday says Jordan is not and should not be a role model for, for children. Um, she, she said she didn't write it at all. Um, and she's what I mean. She's she's a, a lingerie model, to put it um, politely, isn't she? I mean, do, do, is there no moral outrage these days about somebody like that um, writing works for children? MG. Maybe she's maybe she's been redeemed from it. You know. Redeemed. I mean, I, ah. I, I yeah. I, I don't think I could have a an objection to this because you know I'm a free market capitalist and. This is a product that's perfectly valid, and if people like it, they should buy it. Mm. Where I am a bit disturbed is I think I think this is via, this whole kind of celebrities writing children's books is in danger of violating the uh, economic principle of comparative advantage, oh. which you'll know, Peter, of course, because you're that's economics. But let's, that sort of dictates that. Don't explain it to me. <laughs> pretending that you don't know the law of principle of comparative advantage, yes. that roughly says that um, supposing that, say, Madonna and Joe Rowling can both sing and write children's books, yeah. but Madge is a lot better at singing and Rowling is a lot better at the writing, then the economy, you can actually do this as a simple proof, the economy as a whole is a lot better off if Madge sticks to the singing and Rowling sticks to the writing. So my concern actually is just for the health of the economy. I mean, what is the opportunity cost to the glamour industry of Katie being busy <laughs> with all the pony books? Well, I guess that's the one. That's where I'm worried. <laughs> that's a fantastic <laughs> argument, I think. Impressive. <laughs> oh, that even made sense to me. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, what was the moral dimension to this, chaps? Why aren't we full of moral outrage? You know, I mean, I'm an agent for heaven's sake, and I'm I'm angry about this. I mean, you know, what, but it isn't. What's immoral about it? 
Well, uh, when you write Self- a book, you, because- you've got... <laughs> You've got to suffer a bit. But you've got to suffer a bit before you get the big paycheck, haven't you? Well, Absolutely. now, wait a minute. She was a model. She probably suffered a lot while she was becoming yeah. a model. So. Yeah, she she doesn't have to suffer because she, she suffered doing something else and becoming famous. You know, she suffered a lot. I mean, you know. She suffered under the knife, certainly. Curious, shade, curious <laughs> shades. So she's cleansing her stained soul in the innocence of children's unspoiled dreams. I like, it. I like it. I've got a copy of one of these books, actually. I bought it for my daughter. Oh, heathen. Well, you know, it was cheap. At a Scholastic Book Fair. It was pink. She was cheap and pink. I, okay. I don't think, I don't think I'm going to be reading it with her, though, because it's just a bit girly. Mm. Um, I, you know, it's all about best friends going out on Did, pony rides just, together. Richard, Richard. Does Peter Andre like kind of appear uh, on occasions on the odd page? You know, Peter Andre says, oh, keep that pony nice and safe, or... I love the really chaste picture of her, actually, that's on them. You know, she looks looks like, you know, clean and wholesome with her nice blonde hair and pigtails and stuff. And you think, lovely, lovely Jordan. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah, but then you think of Frankie Howard with his chaste and so often coarse. <laughs> oh, Richard, come on. I, I you can usually rely on you for some moral outrage here. I mean, well, no, um, no, no. I, I, well, I, I just think that she's very selfish, you know, considering how much money she's got and how big her boobs are. She's got her own TV program. Why does she need to write books? Yeah. Leave us alone. Well, you know, it, that, that's it's bad enough getting, that I'm having yeah. trouble trying to learn to write, mm. you know, let alone she's pretending that she's written stuff. It's just awful. I, I just feel inadequate and small. <laughs> and my man just can't compete. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. You think this well, actually is a slippery slope? Now, now, Richard, to get back to her, what you need to do is start male modeling. See, that way you'd cross over into her area. Yeah. Oh, I'd have to shave. Uh, Richard, oh, dear touch with the female side. I don't know, yeah. isn't the, the kind of rugged look back in? <laughs> Never mind, Rich. No, don't you think this is a slippery slope? I mean, all, all the, the whimsy aside, actually starting to say that this person can't do this because they're one of those and this pers- person can't do yeah, that. Yeah, that's what troubles me. I don't do like anything that, that appears to yeah. interfere with the free market, to be honest. Yeah, that's she's up for a writing prize and she didn't write it. It's a book prize. It's not a writing prize. Oh. The prize is for the book. Oh, okay. I've been to the Nibbies, you know. Yeah. It's a whole bunch of books I've never read. Chuna <laughs> <laughs> uh, Modra says, I'm more worried of Rolling Stars modelling underwear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. That's enough, Katie Price. Let's move on to uh, Katie Price. Mark two. Disney plans to turn Enid Blyton's famous five books into a cartoon series with a radical 21st century makeover. Uh, No more secret tunnels, pen knives and balls of string. Bring on iPods, mobile phones and other modern day gadgets. A new plot involves a pirate DVD factory whose owner has been embedding subliminal messages to brainwash children. Disney say this contemporary twist remains faithful to the spirit of Blyton's stories. I say Enid Blyton is Katie Price II. Uh, N- Nicole Martin reveals in the Daily Telegraph that instead of the original, uh, Joe, Max, Ellie, Dylan and their pet dog Timmy are the new five. Joe is short for Jotty, a Hindu word meaning light. He's Anglo-Indian. Max enjoys, he's 13, he enjoys adrenaline-packed sports. 12-year-old Ali was born in California and loves shopping and sending text messages, to, text messages to her friends. Dylan, 11, is the gadget geek and wannabe tycoon. Laura Clooney, the series producer, said the new characters are smart kids who love to get down and dirty in the outdoors. They are savvy, engaging, and love to get stuck into a good mystery. But they also enjoy modern technology like iPods, computers, and mobile phones. 
This reflects what children today like to do in their spare time. Vivian, Vivian Endicott, a member of the Enid Blyton Society, said she was wary about the makeover. I don't really see how you can take the famous five out of their era, which is 1940s Britain, she said. So um, is, isn't this an ultimate marker in the decline of Western civilization as we, uh, as we know it? Um, MG, back to you. Well, I'm actually glad to see the famous five updated because um, I think my... I think my daughter would enjoy um, reading it and or seeing it on TV, and she's not going to do that the way it is. But I, I actually fear that the part that needs real attention isn't the updating gadgets and the multiculturalism, but the fact that for, for modern child readers, it's actually no longer acceptable to have your whole plot hinging around an overheard telephone conversation that goes, blah, blah, government scientists, blah, blah, <laughs> underground base, blah, blah, nuclear secrets, blah, must be stopped by Thursday tea time. I mean, you just can't get away with that anymore. And, and I think fixing that is much more of a stretch of Blyton's books than anything else I've heard suggested. But if they can, great. Uh, well, apart from you just blown my writing career out of the water. Thanks very much for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my was, that, was that it? Blah, blah, government scientists. <laughs> blah, blah. It, it almost <laughs> word for word. It's so depressing. <laughs> Uh, I mean, um, no, the, there are two things, really. One, I think, you know, you could, your daughter could watch the comic strip, of course. You know, Five Go Mad in Dorset and Five Go uh, Mad on Mescaline. She's six. She's six. I don't want her watching that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, of course, the, the, the profound irony of, of, of a Disney production about a factory full of DVDs <laughs> designed to brainwash children. I thought that was... I'm sorry, but do you, watch, do you watch Sarah Jane Adventures at all? That's basically the plot of every Sarah Jane Adventures is, you know, um, uh, some gadget that's going to brainwash school children. Well, quite, yes. And but very good case. it is, too. Yes, We've well, already I... had it in the Demon Headmaster, haven't we? Back in... Uh, you cannot you... get enough of that stuff. Kids love it. Well, it's just the irony of Disney doing it, you know, distributing... But, but it, it's it not the people? Famous Five, is it? It's, it's not the Famous it's, Five. They it's just, their it's nephews not, it's not. or something. Yeah, but it's 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 just crap branding, and and that this gets me more upset than the the, the Katie Price mm. thing. Um, I'm t- taking it slightly off off centre. It's it's the same issue as with the release of the latest uh, I Am Legend film with Will Smith, which in the film uh, ends up him becoming sorry if I'm going to ruin it for anyone, but uh, that it revolves around him developing the cure for this. Um, kind of vampiric disease uh, and the end of the film has him coming up with a cure and that's how he is a legend but the book and the core of the book is all about how while he's trying to solve the puzzle of of the uh, the cure he is also systematically going around executing vampires uh, and the story is actually about how he has become a legendary monster not that uh, he's he's just come up with the cure you know, whereas he, he thinks he's going around saving the world by killing all these vampires, they have created their own community and, and they turn on him and see him as this monster and that's the whole point of the book. And yet in the film they completely destroy the basis of the plot and yet they, they tag it with the same name on the grounds that people will go and see it thinking it's the same thing when it's not. And that's exactly the same thing that they've done here with the Famous Five. They've said, we'll take the branding because a lot of adults will think that this is the next thing that their, pet, their kids should, should see and there's no reason for it, for it to be linked at all. Rant and over. yet on the other hand, a lot of times, and I've, I've seen this just observing... You take a, a cartoon using the famous five can often pull people back to reading the original. There's a famous five actually known in the states. Bob. I've never heard of no. it, but there have been. Uh, guess it's uh, going to be. I guess other books, other series that were, you know, f- 
British or French or whatever that uh, somebody you know did a cartoon. I'm I'm going back years, mm-hmm. and then suddenly there was a strong interest in it. Yeah. The, the, oh, I want to go read the original. Um, we we've had kind of a rebirth of Narnia because of that, yeah. because of the Disney, uh, well, Walden Media doing Narnia, and, and then you know you see children who are actually, oh oh, there's a Narnia book, mommy, I want to buy it, and it's not every child's going to do that, but it can actually bring some of these older classics back out into the light, mm-hmm. so that people can read them and enjoy them. Um, as far as the updating aspect, well, they do that with the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and a lot of the uh, children's classics to, to make it more interesting to today's youngsters. Um, but why Disney don't... Disney can can do really quality stuff. If this is going to be on like uh, Disney Channel or Toon Disney, it uh, most of the stuff on the on Disney's networks uh, they do some pretty nice things. So I'm I'm. Uh, I'm being optimistic, yeah, and I'll I wait and see. And I think it'll be, I think it'll be um, much better than the books are now for a modern audience. You've got, I mean, maybe people have forgotten what kind of things are in those books, but hmm. you know, there's massive sexism. Hmm. You know, the implication that George is, is a lesbian, you know, because she couldn't possibly be be uh, as as kind of gung ho as she is if she was a proper girl. I mean, everything that's satirized in the comic strip, everything that's 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 satirized in the comic strip is is actually true. You know, they're horribly middle class and pretentious and, you know, they'd probably faint if a black person walked down the street and say, that's got to be a villain. So, you you know, the the famous five is dead in the water without some kind of... So why bother dragging it up again? Because it's a great concept. It's a brilliant concept. And I think it's a wasted concept. Five kids running around... Because it's the concept. I mean, you know, they couldn't invent something that's that's that similar without people saying, so you've got five kids who hang out in the summer holidays and solve problems um, that their uncle seems to come across a lot. How is that not the famous five? I mean, it is. Anyway, um, you should see what they've done with yeah. all the all the variants on Winnie the Pooh. I mean, you know, Winnie yeah. the Pooh is just a... You know, Tigger and Friends. Sure that was the whole new, the end, no, no, really? it's got whole new characters in it. They've, it's amazing what they've done to extend the life out of you know a few little volumes. Yeah. If only A. A. Milne's family had not given the rights away for you know a tea set or something like that, <laughs> they'd be squillionaires by now. But do you need to do that to well, a classic? I mean, if something is truly a classic, that means it's in, enduring, isn't it? Well, the thing is, you know, the, the um, I think the original Disney adaptations of of say Winnie the Pooh were. Well, pretty much, they used up all the stories, so you have to invent more stories. Oh, well, um, I'm still continuing on my um, end of the world theme. In 1985, a lifetime ago, he took the publishing world by storm with Less Than Zero, a traumatic journey into the nihilistic world of the young, jaded Los Angelinos who just didn't care about anything. They recounted cocaine scores and semi-anonymous sex in the same tone with which they lamented their fading suntans. That was then, and to some it seemed to herald the collapse of civilised values. Now 44, Brett Easton Ellis is middle-aged and only cares about valet parking and a full bar. Scott Timberg in the Los Angeles Times reveals this week how Ellis is truly uninterested in talking about his own career, his own place in the literary firmament. I don't care anymore, he said in an interview. I never really did care. That's probably a good thing too, says Timberg. In most of the important conversations about contemporary American literature, Ellis doesn't show up. 
Academia doesn't take him seriously. He's not taught or written about critically like his generational peers. His work is often savaged by critics. His last book, the 2005 quasi-autobiographical novel Lunar Park, was deemed the worst novel I've ever read by Steve Armand in the Boston Globe. And almost a quarter century into his career, he's never won or been within shouting distance of a major literary award. To some, he's a kind of Duran Duran of the literary world. Fashionable once, but now a footnote. His clipped prose was fit only for the MTV generation. I think in the last five years or so there's been a rather ominous silence, says Jonathan Keats, a San Francisco critic and artist who admires Ellis's work. It seems like Ellis has never been given the benefit of a test of time. He's gone from being poster boy for everything extreme to a name that's quaintly nostalgic, a moment from the past. Uh, a few years ago, after Less Than Zero, American Psycho hit. By now, the story's familiar. Ultraviolent prose, a remorseless yuppie killer. Mocked in the press, protested by the National Organization for Women, dropped by its publisher. The stigma remained when the novel was later published by Vintage. What bothered a lot of folks about Psycho, said Alfred Mobilio, fiction editor of Book Forum, wasn't the ultraviolence, but the killer's devotion to brand-name products. The devotion was satirised with such energetic precision that it was impossible not to conclude that Ellis himself was pretty besotted. That may have proved his real literary crime. So... After nihilism, what comes next, Richard? Oh, if he's besotted with brand names, maybe he'd have bought the uh, Katie Price novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I watched the film. I, I love the film. I, I got the book and I never read it. Mm. Because it's all kind of nihilistic and it doesn't really care and he doesn't seem to care now. So... Yeah. Why should I care? It seemed like the end of the world at the time, didn't it? It seemed as if, um, you know, things had changed and that, that was it. There was no more. And of course there was. You know, things just went on and on. Is that is that the message that we should take away from this once wonderkind, do you think, Beverly? I'll go along with that. <laughs> You're not allowed to agree. <laughs> oh, I'm not allowed. Uh, well, I don't know. You'd have to talk to someone younger about that. I'm I'm at the point where... You take things very personally, and then you realize, you know, go back to Hemingway. Hmm. Sun also rises. Well, I was thinking about it. It's 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 brilliant, isn't it? Somebody writes such a kind of nihilistic novel in their youth, and then, like all of us, becomes increasingly middle class. Yes. Yes. And and then starts trying kind of goes with the flow of of that natural sort of class entropy that we all have, mm-hmm. and tries to rebel against it, and then wonders what happened. Yeah, it's you know it's inevitable, isn't it? Well, I think it's you know if you look at uh, just from a a cultural point of view, you you had the angry generation in the sixties, you know the hippies that were you know they were going to solve all the world's problems, make the world sing, and yet not all of them, but many of them turned around became even more materialistic than the parents that they were objecting to. Mm. So, but you can't fight the system; you can't fight it and win. MG, did, did this mean anything to you at the time, 1986, less than zero? Um, no, because I, I would read novels about characters who can't be bothered. Um, but you except can't obviously be bothered. I can't be bothered. Yeah, I can't be bothered. <laughs> I, I can't criticise really, because I've never read any of his books, I have to say. And it's not because they're hip, but they're written in English, and I hardly read any books that are. But it does strike me, though, that there's... Um, there's a huge difference between Latin American writers, which is what I do tend to read, mm. and, and Mr. Ellis. I mean, if you look at, <laughs> say, Isabel Allende or Mario Vargas Llosa or Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the way they conduct their non-writing lives, I mean, they, they get their hands dirty in issues that matter. They get into politics, they get into social awareness, and you cannot imagine that they'd ever say something like, 
I don't care about anything except ballet parking and a full bar. I mean, that just would never happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes you think that life in the in the white, urban, upper middle class USA must be pretty dull. That's all I can conclude. Hmm. <laughs> well, the world just went on going. It kept on spinning, didn't it? It has a way of doing that, yeah. It, apparently it does. And maybe that's the lesson we're drawing from this evening's uh, debate. I'm not sure yet. It ain't over yet. Sixty years ago, it was argued that comic books, <laughs> comic books, stultified the imagination and inspired the vulnerable to become criminals. The aesthetics of early comics were often crude, rowdy, disrespectful, violent, and sexually provocative. There was something new and dangerous in youth culture. In the early days of the Cold War, comics were as controversial as communism. Comic books stultified the imagination of normal kids and dumbed us all down. Reviewing the Ten Cent Plague by David Hadju, just published by Farrar, and Giroux, Jeet Her, writing in the Globe and Mail, Toronto Globe and Mail, uh, explains how it all happened. In the late 1940s and early 50s, thousands of American kids discovered just how flammable comic books could be. Egged on by parents, teachers and such guardians of piety and patriotism as the Catholic Church and the American Legion, countless children, sometimes willingly, but often reluctantly, participated in schoolyard reenactments of the bonfire of the vanities, setting aflame horror and crime comic books that allegedly had the power to corrupt their young innocence and transform them into juvenile delinquents. The post-war anti Comics movement, an astonishing outburst of media-induced hysteria, originated in the United States, but had repercussions in many lands, including England, Mexico, Taiwan, the Philippines, and Canada. In 1949, E. Davy Fulton, an up-and-coming Tory MP from British Columbia, got Parliament to, that's a Canadian Parliament, to pass a private member's bill banning crime comics from our pristine dominion, Jeter writes. In his splendid new cultural history, The Tencent Plague, respected U.S. cultural critic David Hadju vividly brings this half-remembered debate to life, showing that the fierce struggle of comics was an important battle in a cultural war over youth and freedom that continues to rage even this day. Comic books were born, he goes on to say, in the Depression-era United States as tawdry plebeian offshoots of the more respectable Sunday funnies, which ran in newspapers. Initially, comic books merely reprinted and imitated such established comic strip stars as Buck Rogers and the Cats and Jammer Kids, but in the late 1930s the medium was seized by a cohort of very young would-be cartoonists, often just teenagers, who had no other prospect open to them. These cartoonists were a ragtag collection of outsiders. Many were first and second generation immigrant Jews and Catholics. Some were African Americans. Others artistically inclined young women who were hampered by sexism from working at ad agencies or newspapers. What united them was a depression fueled desperation to turn their pulp fiction inspired dreams into bright four colour fantasies. Although they worked for fly by night publishers in sweatshop like conditions, putting out garishly produced pamphlets that were sold for a dime to children, these pioneering cartoonists created a pantheon of heroes that would soon define. U.S. culture, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Captain America, Plastic Man, and many others. Uh, the intellectual leader, he goes on to say, of the anti-comics crowd was the German-born psychiatrist Frederick Wertham, or Wertham. Like many of the early cartoonists, Wertham was an immigrant, but he didn't come out of the ghettos of Eastern Europe or the tenements of New York. He was an avatar of European high culture, fearful that the barbarism of fascism could be reborn in the United States. Superman reminded Wertham of the Ubermensch, exalted by Nietzsche and appropriated by Hitler. Based on clinical work he did in Charitable Hospital in Harlem, Wertham argued that almost all comic books stultified the imagination of normal kids and inspired the more vulnerable to become criminals. In denigrated comic books, Wertham used language as bold and unrestrained as anything found in a Batman story. I think Hitler was a beginner compared to the comic book industry, he once said. Was he right? He still has his defenders, notably Bart Beatty, a professor of communications at the University of Calgary, who champions Wertham as a progressive scholar who cared about, quote, the most defenseless portion 
expression of post-war American society children. So, were they right to burn them? And haven't things actually just got a lot worse since the advent of the comic book? Richard? Were they right to burn them? Uh, yeah. Um, obviously, get them out of the way and make way for, for some new ones. Um, <laughs> I, I personally have you know, got a special place for comics, comic books in, in my heart. Uh, I think there are, there are some great ones, just like there are, there are great novels, and I think there are um, some really poor ones. I, I personally was brought up on, uh, on a mix of Marvel and uh, Thundercats, hmm. the comics. I, I don't think anyone would find uh, Thundercats particularly uh, offensive in any way. Uh, <laughs> I always liked them. <laughs> I've got a big collection. I still buy them occasionally. Yeah, what I really, uh, I, they had a series years and years ago, uh, I'm not even going to say when, that they called the Classic Illustrated and then Classic Illustrated Junior, and I absolutely adored those. Yeah. Um, but we discussed yeah, this a couple of months ago uh, because they were, do, they were taking classic books and putting them in the graphic book format. Yeah, we, we, we spoke to the publisher, didn't we, a few, a few yeah, weeks ago? we did. And I thought it, then, it, it was so wonderful, Peter, because... As you grow up um, and you start reading, you know, you come across books that you looked at at maybe at eight or nine, like Hunchback or, you know, Three Musketeers or some of the others. And when you actually read the book, it's like finding an old friend. It's the most enjoyable thing. And having taught that there are some children who, who do have trouble reading and they can relate to comic books. I mean, it, it's it's not like yeah, but should, should they though? Should but they? at least they're reading. It, it's yeah, sometimes- I, I was I was brought up. I mean, I wasn't allowed. I wasn't allowed comic books when I was a kid because I, I was told flatly that if I if I read those things that my friends were reading, some of them at least, um, surreptitiously, that would make me stupid, and, and they did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I don't agree with it. I because sometimes the the comic books the only way. An imaginative child who, who's got issues can actually, it's a, it's a way to link well, to. The them. child should surely be, 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 be forced, shouldn't they? They should be forced to, you know, to, to get into something that's going to stretch them. I mean, today, I mean, the logical extension of that is 60 years ago is actually happen, happening today. That um, a new survey has just come out. Boys and girls as young as 11 said they preferred absorbing the exploits of pop stars and models, such as Amy Winehouse and Kate Moss, in gossip magazines to reading books by Jacqueline Wilson or Philip Pullman. I mean, this this is just as an extension of the slippery slope, isn't it? We really are going to hell in the handbasket, are we not? Well, I, I suppose those magazines are kind of written like comics, aren't they? Yeah. Um, they're not written like no, comics. I, I, I no, comics have a narrative and a structure, and, you know, they're, they, they're a different, I think, equally valid experience of reading because, you know, because your visual centres are being stimulated as they would be by, like, a movie. And, but you've also got a reading activity going on. And, and long afterwards, you'll, you know, especially of a very evocative graphic novel type thing, you will remember the images and the accompanying lines of, um, of prose or dialogue. I think it's, they're just very different. Yeah. And, and sometimes, um, you know, I, I can remember working in a bookstore and mothers coming in outraged because their little daughters wanted to read The Babysitter's Club. Oh, no, I want her to read Jane Austen. Well, some children aren't ready for Jane Austen. Let them go ahead and read The Babysitter's Club. When they're ready, they'll, they'll look for the deeper, more interesting books. You know, and, and I think that's a mistake people make too. Some children just aren't ready to read narrative. They need the pictures too. And, 
you know, I'm I'm sorry. I don't think comic books are a bad thing. Yeah, but don't don't you think if you went back to your your caveman in in his cave, there'd be he'd be drawing his little drawings of people hunting on the wall, and his son would be sitting there writing some words. And you don't want to bother with your fangled newfangled words. It's pictures is where it's at, son. I don't know why it's from Yorkshire, but um, but pictures came first, so I don't think he'd be exactly. Saying, that's yeah. what that's what I mean. He'd be, you know, they, they worked in pictures and that worked yeah, fine yeah. for them. Hieroglyphs, are they early graphic novels? I don't know. But the point is the barbarians have always been at the gates, haven't they? Everybody decries this or that lot. You know, the, the impressionists were, were the, the collapse of, of um, French culture. Oves were throwing a paint pot in the public's face, as was uh, Whistler. Uh, and, so, and so it goes on. You know, Stravinsky was... was um, you know, vilified as were, you know, all the kind of the impressionist writers and so on. And now they're mainstays of our culture. It's the barbarians are always there. We've got to decide how we react to them because they're not going away. Yeah. And don't don't forget about Glenn Miller and the jitterbug. Now, how that was I, the how, You know, I, never a day goes by when I remember <laughs> Glenn Miller. And the <laughs> well, it was just what, 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 what's, your point? what's your he, point, Beverly? <laughs> <laughs> he, he would have jitterbugged. That's uh, I just do that all the time as a. Res- it, it was. I, it, I just had to laugh because my mother, who was of the pre World War Two generation growing up, just you know, laughing about her parents' generation, crying about the, the terrible teenagers of the war years because of the jitterbug, and you know they listen to this this awful swing music, and you know it's right. Again. But it was racism. It was because the jitterbug came from, you know, a black dance, basically. That was, yes. that's what the problem was, is that it was, it was white people doing a black dance. Mm. And there's nothing, you know, Well, good more than that, it was just considered, uh, well, all right, let, let's take the nice, lovely waltz that we consider so beautiful and yes, charming. Yes, that was well, scandalous. It was time. horrible. It was a folk dance, you know. Yeah. It came out of folk culture, and my lord, they're actually touching each other. He's got his hand on her waist. Oh, shocking. Yes, that's probably where the decline of civilization started, is the waltz, the tango. <laughs> and then well, who, it's just who was it who said that shocking. dancing is the vertical expression of a horizontal desire? <laughs> well, it is, and I'm, I'm actually sitting here, I must admit, choosing you know whether I'm going to wear my slutty red top or my slutty back top, black top when I go dancing tonight. <laughs> Probably go with the red. <laughs> Are you in the mood for red? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Black is always good. That's... You think? But I'm wearing black trousers. Yeah, but watch out. You oh, well, then we're definitely the red. You're wearing black trousers. Yeah. I, I approve the red. You're setting yourself up for a Christa Bird denouement to the evening, so watch it. <laughs> yeah. Who's <laughs> dancing with you. Just as proves my point, actually. We, we are witnessing the, the final days of civilization as we know it. <laughs> the jitterbug. Yeah. Salsa. Yeah. It's the end. Misty Berg is the Antichrist. Yeah, always avoid anything that look, could involve uh, Christopher emerging at the end. <laughs> Never what do anything that can do else? that. I don't Absolutely. think a nice Irish boy like Christopher is going to be anywhere near where I'm going tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. The Irish everywhere, all over the world. <laughs> oh, we have them here in Indianapolis. Who, Christy Berg or Jim will fix it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Irish. 
Well, we started out by asking, is it the end of everything we know and hold dear? Is it the end of civilization? Uh, and apart from discovering that um, the waltz was actually the prime mover being responsible for the initiation of the decline of civilization, I'd just like to go around and ask everyone what our views are now. I mean, civilizations, Beverly, you're the historian amongst us here. You can give us the long view. Civilizations don't always inexorably keep on going and keep on rising. They, they do decline and fall. We, we, we know that. There's ample evidence of it. And at some point, therefore, there must be a tipping point, mustn't there? There must be a turning point. I mean, what, what, are we close to that? What are the indications? Give us, give us the long view. Well, from a long view, the tipping point usually comes from some disastrous outside source. Um, you know, plague, famine, some sort of terrible uh, natural disaster that that speeds it along. Um, or big-breasted beast. And then, of course, you yeah. have places like China that basically absorbs everything and continues. Might change on the outside, but China remains China. So, mm. Yeah, it's a very good point, actually. Not all civilizations go through the kind of uh, catharsis that we've had in in the West. Well, the, again, that a lot of times, uh, for example, Rome, what happened to Rome was a combination of, of uh, plague and some other things that were going on. It wasn't just that they got top-heavy and fell apart. They, the advent of Christianity coupled with some serious black plague and things of that sort, that pretty well did the Romans in. And yet, yeah, that's, and yeah, yet that's, Roman civilization continues if you look at our laws. Yes, in a form. Well, Jared's Di- Jared Diamond's thesis, I think, in his book, Collapse, is that it's always a combination. It's not just one, you know, it can't just be one thing like famine. It's usually yes. famine followed by drought, followed by plague, right. followed by, you know, political upheaval. And then it's just, there's only so much a civilization can take. Yes. But it does have to be a combination of some fairly nasty things. But these are external sort of stressors, aren't they? Um, what we've been talking about, about tonight is sort of you know the way that a civilization uh, holds itself in its own regard, and um, yeah. as far as that's concerned, MG, um, what, what do you think? We got a, a clean bill of health from you, or what? Well, you know, I, I am optimistic actually because I, I don't, all of these things that you say are the decline of civilization. I don't really see them as that. I think there's you know it's a change. Mm. But um, it, you, you have to start from some point of view that the man in the street used to read Voltaire, which just never happened, really. So, you know, if that's your definition of civilization, then obviously it's all downhill. But mm. I don't think that ever was the case. So um, I think it's just a matter of perspective and where you probably are in the social order. Yeah. You see it differently. I think if you are poor, <laughs> it's always been rubbish and it's always going to be rubbish. Yeah. If you're one of the poor down, downtrodden. Yeah. I mean, if, can we ever achieve that the degree of, um, of objectivity necessary to sort of say this is the, the moment at which our, our civilization has reached the tipping point? No, because no, we're living it's afterwards. Yeah, exactly. You can only mm. see that from long, long afterwards. Yeah. Well, or at, at least from a, a another perspective. I mean, we're kind of the lab rats running around. I mean, it's it would have to be the scientists looking outward Richard, in. Richard, um, Philistines, they're everywhere these days. They, uh, they, they control just about every aspect of our cultural life, don't they? I mean, well, for, for a start, they, they have some other ketchup on everything, don't they? Yeah. Uh, and, and then that's where I think it all goes downhill because you ruin your palate with tomato uh, and, and you're, you're not going to go reading anything but Katie Price. Um, but then... <laughs> 
the, the, the majority of the people on this planet are poor yeah. uh, and, and they, they have really crap jobs uh, and yet they're keeping the systems working so at the end of the day all they want to do is they want to kick back and they want to read the lowest common denomination book uh, and watch a lot of footy and go out and beat the crap out of each other um, because that's what their life is. But hasn't that always been the case? I mean, yeah, exactly. It, it, the start of this country, I mean, most people, they, they had their little farms, they worked hard, went in in the evening, might have read a page or two of the Bible, and that was it. That was the end of the day. They, they didn't even read light-minded fiction or philosophical works because they considered things like Voltaire. I mean, that was dangerous. That was, yeah. you know, that, that wasn't God-given scripture. So, to them... Uh, you know, and I'm I'm talking about the Puritans here in New England. Yeah. They viewed viewed Virginia as a very light-minded, frivolous society. It, it um, one of the best films going is 1776. It, it's a musical. takes a rather light-hearted view of the uh, birth of the United States, the writing of the Declaration, but it is very well researched and just the. You know, the, the Adams and, and Franklin and Jefferson, they have a common cause, and yet all three men are so different. And then when you bring in the rest of the uh, uh, members of the Continental Congress, you, you really understand that this was not a homogenous group. That I mean, they all had different agendas. They all had different beliefs and views, and... I think that's always been the case. Uh, Curious Shade says in the chat room, seriously though, perhaps this sense of impending eschaton, I assume that comes from eschatology, is just, yep. is just inspired by the communications revolution, allowing us to see and produce so much more of the average world. Um, he goes on to say, more global news, more MySpace pages. Ruby Tuesday says, yeah, I do think that we're just more aware of the world around us. And he, Curious Shade concludes, in that sea of media, there is more brilliance and creativity, but it's harder to find and drowned out by louder voices. Um, so, Dave, um, you're, you're the eminence grease here. Well, reasonably grease. What, um, uh, optimist, pessimist? What do you feel? Well, it's it's all in layers, isn't it? As, as Donkey would sh- would say, you know, there are there are these kind of different levels at which things are operating. I, I think it's a continuum rather than a series of abrupt halts for us. Now we're in a position where our civilization is self-sustaining in those terms. But I I I do worry because I think the whole kind of dumbing down of society is is a plot by the government in a 1984 kind of way. Keep the proles happy with football, celebrity, and all those other things, and they won't worry about the the dirties that are being done behind closed doors, which is a bit paranoid, but there you go. Um, and being one of the people who kind of fights the forces of darkness and ignorance for a living every day, it's, um, it's not as bad out there as you think with young people, but it could be a lot better in terms of their understanding. Mm. I think the real downside of that being more aware of the world and all the rest of it is we're also more, you know, it's the kind of compassion fatigue thing, isn't it? We're, we're blasé about it and we, we don't pay attention to it anymore because we've seen it in certain ways and, and it's sound bites and quick clips. And we, we just, um, it becomes part of that kind of vast collage of grey that goes on behind us all the time on the tube and that's a shame because yeah. there's some wonderful stuff that just gets lost in that melange of stuff that gets spewed out at us. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, thank you very much, everybody. I think we had t- totally big universal themes tonight from uh, writer and historian Beverly Gray, Dave Bartram, Richard Howes, and, of course, our very special guest, who's had some excellent news today, actually. Um, M.G. Harris is uh, officially the best-selling debut author in children's fiction this year. Well, well done, M.G. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's great news, M.G. That's, that's really, really yeah. excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's, been, it's been terrific having you as our special guest this week. We have another extremely special guest next week. I'm not telling you who it is at the moment, but um, it will be, uh, be something quite, um, quite, quite special. From all of us to all of you, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Let's do it again next week. Bye. Thank you very Nighty much. night, everyone. Bye. Bye. Well, that was the show, and this is the Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers' Colony. The main website address is www.litopia.com. And we also have a microsite purely dedicated to our podcasts. The address is podcast.litopia.com. There's no www, just type podcast.litopia.com, and you'll find it. That's also where you'll find show notes and links referenced in this episode, all carefully compiled by our podcast officer for your benefit. How are you currently listening to this podcast? The best way is to subscribe to it using iTunes. iTunes is free software, and it works both on the Mac and the PC. Once you subscribe in this way, every show will be automatically downloaded for you the moment it's available. Full instructions on the Litopia website. And talking of iTunes, if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a good review on our iTunes page. We rely on word of mouth to promote the podcast and really would appreciate your help to tell people about us. On the website, podcast.litopia.com, you'll find a neat little widget that you can easily add to your MySpace page, your blog, or your social network. Just click on the button for full instructions. It's easy to do, it looks cool, and it helps us too. We're constantly working to make the show and the website better and better. One new feature allows you to sign up to have our fulsome show notes delivered automatically to your mailbox, again, as soon as the show is released. Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you, and we'd be delighted to receive your comments and suggestions. There are several ways to do this. Choose whatever suits you. You can, for example, leave a comment on the show notes page, or you can use the handy feedback form, again, on the website. If you prefer, you can send us an email, and if you're feeling very adventurous, you can even record your thoughts as an MP3 file and send that to us too. Our email address is podcast at litopia.com. Remember, in addition to being available as podcasts, our shows are also streamed live over the internet as they're recorded. This means you can listen in to all our bloopers, and you can also make comments or post questions via the special live chat facility. You'll enjoy it. It's great fun. Full details on the website. Finally, if you appreciate what we're doing, then please do consider giving us some mild financial support to cover our web hosting and bandwidth costs. It only takes a moment to click on one of the buttons to make a donation, and it will help us keep going. This is Peter Cox. Thank you for listening, and looking forward to being back with you again soon. Bye.